And as we are celebrating this morning the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ to rescue us from sin and guilt and reconcile us to God, um, to consider Scripture's teaching on that point, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 this morning. I think quite often when we reflect upon the narratives of Christ's birth, a lot of attention is given, of course, to to Mary and uh, to Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, the shepherds and wise men and angels, but poor old Joseph is often left out, isn't he? And I suppose one reason for that is because I guess like many husbands, Joseph doesn't have a whole lot to say, at least as it's recorded in the narrative. Actually, there isn't a single word spoken by Joseph recorded in Scripture. And yet, nevertheless, as Matthew begins to tell the story of the history of Christ, Joseph plays an important role in that story. So this morning, we're going to consider the story from Joseph's perspective, because that's how Matthew tells it. Uh, here. But before I read our passage, let's pause and ask for God's help to understand uh, his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that uh, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who rested upon the Lord Jesus in all of his fullness, that through this passage of your word, the Holy Spirit would work that we would meet with Christ himself and come to know Christ Uh, for ourselves, whether for the first time or afresh. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's hear God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I think it's a sad reality, but one many of us will be familiar with, that Christmas and crisis often go together. Whether it's a relatively insignificant crisis of the Christmas dinner being overcooked or undercooked or something more serious, the crisis of heartbreak and loss of 
family feuding or painful memories, whatever it is, crises at Christmas time hurt more, don't they? Uh, perhaps it's because we're constantly being bombarded with the message that you, you need to be happy and joyful, tis the season after all. Or perhaps because we have such unrealistic expectations that when we don't meet those expectations, we're disappointed. But one thing is for sure, Christmas and Christ, crisis often go together, don't they? Interestingly, when we come to Joseph's story, it begins with a crisis, a real crisis. Look at the text with me. You'll see it right away. Notice in, in verse 18, we learn that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They are engaged to be married. Now, engagement in that time and culture was much more, uh, much more serious, much more binding than it is in our own. In fact, as Matthew will go on to make clear, it requires a formal divorce in order to break off a betrothal. And and so you can think of uh, this engagement as, you know, stage one of a stage, two-stage wedding. And Mary and Joseph are in that stage one phase when Joseph discovers that his beloved bride-to-be is with child. That she's expecting. Joseph doesn't see how things can possibly uh, work out. So he determines that he, he can't proceed with the wedding. We're told, however, that he is a just man. Actually, the word that Matthew uses is the word righteous. Joseph is a righteous man, and therefore he's a compassionate man, and he doesn't want to bring undue shame upon, uh, upon Mary. So he resolves, instead of going the route of a public legal case, which he could have done, he resolves to pursue a quiet divorce. So it's clear that this is a real crisis. It's not difficult to imagine the, the hurt and pain and betrayal and anger and all the other emotions swirling around in Joseph when he heard the news that Mary, his beloved bride-to-be, was already pregnant. He is in crisis at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, if you, if you think about the accounts of Jesus' birth narratives in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they are anything but neat and tidy. Uh, in each of the accounts of Jesus appearing on the scene of human history, it turns things upside down. It's, it's anything but uh, what you'd expect. I mean, he brings crisis. If you think about it, uh, politicians are thrown into murderous rage. Uh, wise men start following stars. Shepherds abandon their flocks in the middle of the night. The birth of Jesus is not a straightforward story of a newborn entering the world. It was a disruptive event. One that was filled with difficulty and crisis for more than Jesus' own family who had to flee down to Egypt for safety. So I think that says something about the importance and the identity of the child that we are speaking about this morning. When, it, when Jesus comes, you see, he, he turns things upside down and inside out, as I think many of us have personally discovered in, in our own lives. And when Joseph hears the announcement of the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, 
he's thrown into a crisis. But he's not left there. He's not left in the crisis. An angel is sent to Joseph in a dream who speaks words of comfort. So he begins in crisis, but he finds comfort in the middle of the circumstances that he thought only held pain and heartache for him. It's an interesting way that God often works. Very often it's in the very circumstances that generate heartache and pain that God will use and come to us and train us that we might find our comfort and hope in the midst of that crisis all in him. And Joseph finds comfort for his heart and and he uh, he does so in at least four ways. The angel tells Joseph four things that I want to highlight where we might find comfort also. First of all, the angel uh, tells Joseph about the origins of Jesus' coming, the identity uh, that Jesus bears, the plan that Jesus fulfills, and the mission that Jesus performs. That's our outline. I just mixed up two of them, so let me repeat it again. Uh, We're going to think about the origins of Jesus' coming, the plan Jesus fulfills, secondly, the identity Jesus bears, and the mission he performs. So let's think, first of all, about the origins of Jesus' coming. You have to say, understandably, Joseph uh, feels betrayed. He thinks Mary has been with another man, and he can't see how the marriage can possibly work. So, he pl- so plans for a quiet divorce are developing in his mind. But then look at verse 20. As he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And with that one line, as Joseph begins to come to terms with what the angel is communicating to him, all of his fears and his distress begins to disappear. Mary has not been faithful, unfaithful after all. There has been no betrayal. Instead of something awful happening, something awesome is taking place. Instead of something terrible happening, God is doing something wonderful here. God the Holy Spirit has worked in the womb of the Virgin Mary. As we said in Sunday school, the church has often spoke about this in terms of the virgin birth. I think it's more accurate to speak of the virgin conception of Jesus. And because of This mysterious work of the Spirit, Joseph need not hesitate to enter into marriage with Mary. A word of comfort for Joseph. But did you notice how Matthew wants to draw our attention to the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this? He he tells us twice in the passage, first in verse 18 and then in verse 20, that Mary's pregnancy originates in the mysterious and miraculous and hidden work of the Holy Spirit. That's actually an emphasis that we find throughout the biblical accounts of the life of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ. At every point throughout his life, again and again, we are told that the Holy Spirit sustains and upholds and empowers the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mission that he has been given by his Father. And so just walk through this with me for a moment. We've, we've just seen 
the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then as Jesus begins his earthly public ministry, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the Jordan. And then uh, Jesus is led by the Spirit, or as Mark puts it, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then as Jesus, as the man of the Spirit, emerges from the wilderness as the victorious second Adam, he is said to enter into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The gospel authors speak of Jesus performing miracles by the power of the Spirit. On one of those occasions, Isaiah 42 is quoted, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, upon whom my spirit rests. After sending the disciples on a missions trip, we read that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. On the night when he was betrayed, he he took his disciples aside and, and told them that he would send to them another comforter, one like himself, the Spirit who would come and comfort and instruct them. Uh, Through the Spirit, we're told in Hebrews, Jesus offered himself up without blemish to his Father on Calvary's cross. The Father raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit and vindicated him in his resurrection. And between his resurrection and ascension, he breathed upon his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, having ascended to the throne, the exalted Christ poured out his spirit upon the church so that the Holy Spirit who dwelt upon and rested upon the Lord Jesus from conception to exaltation is sent by the very same Jesus to us so that we may have a real living connection with Jesus and know him for ourselves. And so the first word of comfort that Joseph receives is about the origins of Jesus' coming, which is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural work of the Spirit. And by the work of that same Spirit who rested upon Christ, the Spirit of Christ, you and I can know Jesus for ourselves. And so that's the first word. The second word of comfort, then, is the plan that Jesus fulfills, the second source of comfort. So the origin of Jesus coming in the work of the Holy Spirit, then the plan that Jesus fulfills. Now, there are really few words that would, I think, cause us more anxiety than the wrong person saying to us, don't worry, I have a plan. You know, if you're a parent and your child says that to you, you should probably be a little bit nervous. But if it's God himself, saying those words, then it ought to bring tremendous relief and comfort. And that is essentially what is being communicated to Joseph by the angel. Uh, Don't worry, this is all going, Joseph, exactly according to plan. So if you look at verse 22, you'll see that. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there's discussion among scholars as to whether or not the angel said this or whether this is an editorial comment uh, that Matthew adds at the end of the angel's speech. So if you look closely in our version, in the ESV, if that's what you have in front of you, you'll notice at the end of verse 21, uh, the concluding quotation mark. 
So it's saying that's where the angel's speech ended. Uh, But just remember that the quotation marks are not there in the original. And so it's a judgment call whether or not the quotation in verse 22 and part of verse 23 belong to Matthew or to the angel. In in the end, it, it doesn't really matter. But on balance, I think it's best to understand this as the angel's words. But what matters here is the use Matthew makes of this quotation from Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The prophecy of the birth of this child to the virgin who would be called Emmanuel. And actually, this is the first in a series of nine fulfillment texts in the Gospel of Matthew. Nine different times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is said to have fulfilled what was spoken by the Old Testament prophets. And each and every time, the message is exactly the same. That Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who was foretold in the prophets. Jesus is the one to bring to fruition and to fulfillment the plans and purposes of God spoken in the Old Testament. This is all going exactly according to plan. So you may, you may be here today wondering if you can really trust the message about Jesus. Like Joseph, perhaps, you know, the possibility of the birth of a child to a virgin teenage girl never occurred to you. Well, it never occurred to Joseph either until he was told otherwise. How can you know that Jesus is who he says he is? How can you, how can you come to trust in his message? Well, let me encourage you just one thing that you can do. Let me encourage you to check it out for yourself. Why not, why not start with Matthew's gospel, you know, where we're reading today, and just, just keep on reading, keep on going. Maybe, maybe consider asking someone here at church to meet for coffee and read through the gospel of Matthew and discuss Jesus' claims uh, on your life. You know, I, 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 as a pastor, I would love to see more than, well, I shouldn't say more than anything, but one of the things I'd love to see in the life of a church is people getting together and discussing the claims of Jesus Christ and what it means for their lives. Would you consider Jesus as he's revealed himself in the gospel of Matthew? Frankly, for, you know, forget about the cultural depictions of Jesus. They're, they're, they're sappy and worthless. Consider how he has revealed himself in his word. And I think if you honestly uh, give Matthew his due attention... And, and you read it closely, you'll notice his emphasis, his concern to show you that Jesus fulfills the ancient prophecies and promises of the Hebrew scriptures. He, he is the one that the people have been waiting for. He is the one that the world really needs. And, and you'll discover if you, if you read Matthew's gospel that, that the whole Bible fits together in a remarkable way with a single central storyline that leads us to the birth of this child laid in a manger. Just last night I was reading with with our kids uh, a book by Kevin DeYoung called The Biggest Story. It's a tremendous book. If you you haven't read it and you have kids, I'd highly recommend it. What it does is it traces through the whole of Scripture how all of the Bible is tethered to Jesus, how all of the Bible is 
fulfilled in the coming and the life and the death and resurrection and future return of Jesus Christ. And so if you read through Matthew's gospel, you might just find what Joseph discovered, that in Jesus, God was keeping his promises, fulfilling his plan. You might just find that your fear is displaced with faith as you come to trust who Jesus is and what he has done for yourself. And the third, the, the, the third thing I want us to think about, after the origin of Jesus coming, the plan he fulfills, then thirdly, the identity he bears. So look again at the angel's citation of the prophecy of Isaiah in verses 22 through 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Followed, I think, by Matthew's editorial comment, Emmanuel means God with us. So the child promised in Isaiah would be truly, really, fully human. He he would develop in the womb and be born like every other child. He would mature. He would develop. He would grow tired and hungry. He would bleed and die. He's a man, but much more than merely a man. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. So what is, what is really going on in the birth of Jesus? What is it really all about? It is about God himself in the person of Jesus Christ taking flesh, human nature, and dwelling among us. It's the story of Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God for us, but God among us, God with us, God as one of us. And so I think one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, do I, do I really know who Jesus is? Do I really, have I really come to terms with his identity? I'm, I'm not asking, can you, you know, can you scientifically explain the hypostatic union and the coming together of the divine nature and the human nature and the person of Jesus Christ? That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, by the eyes of faith, have you come by the grace of God to see who Jesus really is? Some of you will remember the name Rico Tice, the Christianity Explored series that we went through together not too long ago. And maybe you remember the story that Rico told when he was invited to an exclusive club uh, somewhere in London one night. And he was outside waiting to be let in. And there was another man standing beside him that he vaguely recognized. And they both did what I think guys are likely to do. And They nodded to each other, and then they stood there in awkward silence. (laughs) And after several minutes of that awkward silence, someone came out the door and said, uh, Ah, William, we're in the back room. Come on in. And Rico then realized that that whole time he had been standing right alongside of the future king of Britain. And all I want to say to you, dear friends, is don't make that mistake with Jesus. His identity isn't a secret. He has... He has made it clear. But do you have his identity clear? He's more than just Mary's boy. He's God. He's he's the Lord himself come among us as one of us. And that leads us right to the fourth word of comfort that I want us to look at in this passage. And that's the mission that Jesus performs. Why in the world would God himself come among us at all? 
That's a question we need to ask ourselves. We're, we're told here that we can connect with him personally through the Holy Spirit even today. We're told that he fulfills the promises of Scripture, that this is all according to plan. We're told that he himself is is God and man bringing deity and humanity together that we might know him dwelling among, come among us as one of us. But why? That's the crucial question. Why did he come and why should we even want to connect with him at all? We'll take a look back again at verse 21 for a minute. Uh, Verse 21, Mary, we are told, will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, come come again on Tuesday night, Christmas Eve, and we're going to dive deep into those words because every single one is packed with significance. But the name Jesus, I think you'll know this, is, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua. It means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. So the angel is telling Joseph what Emmanuel's coming is really all about. God is coming down as a man in Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. You see, the assumption here in in what the angel is saying that we all have to come to terms with is that we need rescuing. We need saving. You might not know that, but you do. And so do I. We all do. We all need rescuing. Our fundamental problem, our our most basic problem is not that we are confused and we're in in need of education or that we're poor and in need of riches or that uh, we're victims of injustice and we need uh, justice. It's not... Any of the, we might be any of those things and more, but our fundamental problem, our greatest problem, is that we are rebel sinners in the sight of a holy, almighty God. And that we have no excuse before him for, for our sin. That we, we stand before him guilty without excuse before a holy God. But you see, the good news of the Christmas story is that in Jesus Christ, the God to whom we are accountable has himself come in pursuit of us to rescue us from that fundamental problem. That is what the coming of Jesus is all about. That's what makes this such a joyful occasion. The rescuing of sinners and the redemption of the cosmos. You see, the baby, the baby conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary will go on to live the life that we have failed to live, indeed the life that we cannot live, and he will go on to die the death that we deserve, carrying the guilt of our sin upon his own shoulders, being treated as though he were guilty because he bore the guilt of our rebellion so that we might never die but live through him. Remember how Paul puts it? He died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Our sin on his shoulders and his righteousness given to us. See, Mary's baby is called Jesus because in him 
the Lord himself came down on a rescue mission. I suspect as you're listening to this, at least one of three things may, may be happening. I guess I could think of four, but let's stick with three this morning. First of all, as you've heard, heard the story, you, you might just conclude, you know what, this just isn't for me. I've heard the story. Actually, I've heard it again and again and again. I understand it, and I reject it, plain and simple. If that's you, I just simply want to plead with you to reconsider. I want, I want to urge you to take the claims of the gospel seriously because eternity really does hang in the balance. Like I said a moment ago, forget the, forget the cultural depictions of Jesus and, and uh, things you see in the world around you and all the books being written, some helpful, some not helpful at all. And would you just consider the claims of Jesus as he has revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture? Others of you may find yourself intrigued. You know, you, you're, you're not fully convinced. You've got questions. You maybe would like to learn more. Maybe, maybe you've even grown up in the church. You've been coming with mom or dad or mom and dad. And, and you're, you're interested, but you have questions about this Jesus. If, if that's where you are, let me just say that, first of all, I want to encourage you. I'm thrilled that that's where you are. That you have questions and really want answers. But secondly, let me say the best place to ask those questions is here. In, in the household of faith. Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. The Bible isn't uh, ill-equipped to answer those questions. So I just want to encourage you to consider what I suggested earlier. To connect with someone and read and talk about a gospel. I think in our day, we are in grave danger of taking Jesus and his claims way, way too lightly. And maybe that's a particular temptation or danger for those of us who have grown up in the church. Would you take the claims of Jesus seriously? Would you take Jesus seriously? I mean, he took us seriously enough to lay down his life on the cross for us. So would you consider the claims of Jesus seriously? And let me encourage you to grab somebody, connect with someone, and, and work through a gospel. And if you have trouble thinking of somebody to do that with, come and talk to me. I'd love to help you. Come and talk to one of the elders. We would we'd love to make that happen. Or finally, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you have, in fact, begun to see you really do need rescuing after all. Maybe, maybe you've realized that the, the, the deep, deep, deepest crisis in your life has to do with your own sin and guilt before Almighty God. And, and you've begun to hear him addressing you in the message about Jesus. My friend, if that's you, rest assured, be assured that re Jesus really did come to save you from your sins. And the invitation of this story of Emmanuel, of Jesus, is an invitation to all of us, a summons to all of us, call to all of us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what this message about Jesus calls us to do. Simply trust Emmanuel to save you, and he will. It's a divine promise.
of the gospel. So if you find that Jesus really is at work in your life, we're too good at being isolated and private about these things. We need to break out of that. If you really believe that God is at work in your life, would you find someone and talk to them and have an honest conversation about it? And if you have questions, ask those questions. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. And we want, we want to, as a church, the elders of Trinity, we want to help and encourage you as best we can as you consider the claims of Christ. So let me pray for you. Let me pray for all of us as, as we conclude. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. And we thank you that he is more than Mary's boy. He is the son of God come in human flesh on a rescue mission. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you fulfilled that mission. That you are the Lord who saves. And so we pray for one another. We pray for ourselves and ask that you would bring us to a point where all of us would cry out from our hearts for divine rescue and that we would look to Jesus Christ and him alone and say, Lord Jesus, you are the, the perfect savior that I need. You are the savior that my heart so desperately needs. I stand guilty before God and need of cleansing and you are able to provide it. So would you be my Jesus, my Lord, my Master, my Savior. Pray that we all could pray that uh, to you, Lord Jesus, from our hearts. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.